Hello, I'm Rich Blundell, the scientist in residence at the Mariah Mitchell Association. In the next three episodes of the Nature of Nantucket podcast, we'll meet an extraordinary scientist. Dr. Ursula Goodenough is a biologist whose many distinctions include being an elected fellow of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. The long-awaited second edition of her beloved book, The Sacred Depths of Nature, is being released by the Oxford University Press in early 2023. You can learn more at sacreddepthsofnature.com. Like Mariah Mitchell was in her time, Professor Goodenough is a scientist committed to living life with a religious orientation. In her case, it is through the paradigm of religious naturalism. The key to this perspective is reference to, and reverence for, the epic, all-encompassing story of the cosmos, also known as Big History. Listeners may know that this is a subject of my own research, and a story that's near and dear to my heart. So I asked Ursula how she came to this understanding, and how scientific knowledge enhances her worldview. So my professional life, my day job has always been to be a scientist. Uh, I was a professor of biology at Washington University until I retired in 2017 and moved here to Martha's Vineyard right next door. And since the publication of the first edition in 1998, I've been sort of an evangelist for what lots of us now call a religious naturalist orientation, which means that we're naturalists, we take scientific understandings of nature uh, to mind, um, but we also uh, consider those understandings as a large story, everybody's story, that is a source for our religious orientation, where religious orientation, to my mind, involves three things. One takes one story and one does an interpretive um, read on it. What does it mean? What does it tell me about death? What does it tell me about suffering? What does it tell me about the human? Um, and then the second is spiritual. How does this story make me feel? where religious um, feelings of a spiritual nature would include awe and wonder, gratitude, humility, uh, reverence, that kind of spectrum, and joy, of course. And then the third is a moral interpretation. What does this story tell me about what kind of person I should be and how I should interact with my community? And in this case, Moral quickly becomes eco-moral, since our moral um, theater is not only human to human, but human with the rest of nature. So that's what we're calling eco-morality. And so this religious naturalist orientation then is something that I've been talking about developing, and this led to the formation actually by someone else, in Michael Cavanaugh, started something called the Religious Naturalist Association, which now has about a thousand members. And we have, you know, Facebook and Google Chats and the usual things that a group like this has. My most recently, um, since I recently joined a UU church here on the vineyard, I've uh, initiated with several others the notion of 
trying to bring a religious naturalist orientation into the UU framework, which we think is very suited to it. So that's another trajectory that I'm pursuing. Okay, so let me get this straight. You are um, taking the story that science presents about the universe, so basically the standard science, the cutting-edge standard science, and Absolutely. interpreting it through a certain lens, which is a necessary thing to do. And then from that interpretation, you're deriving um, uh, a source of meaning, a source of spiritual uh, experience, a source of even religious sensibility, and even an ethos, an ethos that can serve the individual and the society. Is that what I'm hearing? And the world. And the planet, yeah. <laughs> and now, does that does that strike you as a radical thing to propose? Well, not really. I mean, it depends on how you read earlier people who walked this path. I mean, Thomas Berry, for one, certainly had all of this in his head. He used different language, but that's where he was coming from. And he has a great following in Brian Swim, Mary Evelyn Tucker, and so on. Um, there's then the whole big story thing where you did your PhD work with David Christian, um, where the uh, big story includes this cosmic story plus a, a focus on human history. Um, and David himself um, was not so keen on the R word, um, but I'm very happy to report that he and I uh, got together, he read my book, um, and he wrote a very positive blurb about the book, the second edition. So that was a great gift to me. Well, needless to say, I'm very familiar with that. Um, how do we say? I guess that's attention. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, and I managed to navigate it successfully, but uh, it was definitely palpable when I was his graduate student. Um, yes. I, I can't say enough nice things about David Christian. He was very kind, very supportive to the degree that he could be. But because mm -hmm. I was open to these things that you are, you're talking about, that the, you know, these, the transformative experience that comes along with understanding that story, I had to blaze a new path. It worked in the end, but it was definitely a challenge. Anyway, it's a different subject. But I'm glad to hear that, uh, that, that you guys have found a common stance on this. I'd really like to get a little bit into the story itself, if you don't mind. So what is the story? What are we talking about when we talk about the story? Uh, big bang onwards, everything that happened, 13 billion years. Most of it happened before the Earth was formed. So, at that, so we're talking about stars and making new kinds of atoms and making galaxies and dark matter and dark energy and all sorts of stuff, and that's the context in which the Earth formed. So the Earth um, had no choice but to be composed of matter and energy. And then about a billion years after the Earth formed, uh, it's what I like to call a planetary matrix, which is all of the parts of the Earth that we know of. Within that matrix, um, the first life arose, and once the first life arose, which was presumably very simple, it underwent evolution and uh, complexified and generated ultimately the 
uh, biodiversity that we now are embedded within. And we came along just a moment ago, and we are therefore all kin to every creature that has ever existed before, which gives a, activates all of our uh, social orientation that we inherited from our primate social lineage, which is very involved with um, keeping uh, things together by active means. And that's the story. There's a subtext that I lift up a lot that's called emergence, which means getting something else from nothing but, so we can reduce down to matter and atoms. But when atoms enter relationships um, to form chemical bonds, for example, um, new entities arise, new entities emerge which are nothing but the atoms, but they're something else. They have what we could say are emergent properties. And these emergent entities then relate to one another over time to generate what we can call emergent dynamics. So things happen that are emergent, not just things. And so that story of emergence is... Uh, examples of it are found in the non-living world, but in the living world, um, it's the whole story. Um, it's how we get critters and how we get ecosystems. Yeah, you're speaking my language here, so um, I wonder. <laughs> I don't know whether I'm speaking your audience's language, but that's <laughs> well, we'll, 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 we're doing the best we can. Um, yeah, I'm one. Can we perhaps dive into one of these? moments i mean i'm really fascinated by the origins of life and uh -huh. and that you know that particular chapter so i wonder if we could talk a little bit about how you understand that what wisdoms can we derive from our current understanding of abiogenesis or or life from okay. non life okay well as i said there's a big section in chapter 2 of the new edition that um, considers this in some detail, um, and I'm basically, um, it's derived from the, what is called the autogen model that Terry Deacon at University of California, Berkeley has articulated. So in the autogen model, model it, it is based um, on Varela's concepts of autopoiesis in terms of autocatalytic cycles, cycles where the products of the cycle in, in fact catalyze the cycle to continue to develop, which create catalysts that then get the cycle to go, and it goes round and round and round. And so the idea is some such cycle, um, doesn't matter what it was made of, it just we're looking at the dynamics, arose somewhere in the planetary matrix, presumably, well, by definition, it arose for, for a first time because before that it wasn't going. And so, so let me just let me just put us in on the yes. timeline here. So we're talking something yeah. around uh, or on the early Earth before there was life. We're talking about the earliest conditions of the Earth when there was liquid water. There was presumably lots of geothermal activity and volcanic activity. Uh, there was no atmosphere as we would know it today. 
probably something like... Oh, I think, like, I think there would have been, not, not as we know it today, but I think right. some sort of atmosphere probably showed up in the first billion years. So we're talking about... So we're like, talking about three and a half billion years ago, so the Earth had a billion years to sort okay. of get its act together. I'm not saying that three and a half billion years ago the Earth was like it is today, but all of the basic players were there and, you know, the, the atmosphere was such that uh, meteors, you know, were not crashing into us all the time and so on. When you talk about autocatalytic systems, we're talking about uh -huh. in some, probably dissolved in water, either deep ocean vent or somewhere else perhaps under the surface of the Earth right. or in a surface pond so deep or something ocean like that. Deep ocean vent is the milieu of choice these days. It <laughs> goes back and forth, and that's because you have uh, lots of energy being created uh, as water seeps into crevices in the mantle, and then it gets spewed out again and cooled. And heating and cooling and heating and cooling is a very way to get chemistry going. Mm -hmm. So you get atoms interacting uh, because they're excited, and then you cool them off and they form bonds. Um, so something like that uh, is the place somewhere deep in the ocean. Mm -hmm. um, and a cycle like this forms. The other thing you have to do to get life is you have to somehow contain this cycle. It won't work unless all the catalysts are very close together. So you have to have some sort of a... Uh, capsid, you know, so mm -hmm. think of mm -hmm. a viral capsid with its DNA or RNA inside it. So one of the products of this cycle is in fact a self-assembling um, material of some kind that forms a container around the cycle. And so that seals it off. And so that's good, except in order to get more substrates to get the cycle to keep going, you have to have this capsid be leaky or open occasionally and then close and so that's all built into this but that's that there's there are no uh big outrageous assumptions made uh in terms of the biophysics or something like that it should work okay mm -hmm. and so, so what, just, so so, you, just real quickly so what i hear you setting yeah. up though are the conditions for lots of interesting relationships to happen between molecules and uh, substances and things like so there's a but it's all about relationship it's about relationships between the particles it's about relationships between the particles Absolutely. and the environment and the that's that's mediated yep. by some kind of discerning membrane or wall or something that, that can still let things pass through but basically you're right. setting up this diverse matrix of relationships and from and, and and that promotes emergent phenomena right is that what you're saying that's correct you're right so we get this original autogen, and the next thing you add is that you make this autogen aware somehow. So its capsid might be shaped so that some sugar in the environment that it's wanting to eat will bind to it and then get taken up. Um, so it's aware of its circumstances. or its. Um, so now we have what we can call a choosy autogen. And... A choosy autogen um, that doesn't let in toxic things and does let in good things, um, the yuck and yum principle. This choosy autogen, we can now think of as a self. And this concept of self is, I think, really important. 
um, a self can be just as simple as an autogen. Itself maintains itself. You can get one autogen to make two autogens if you make enough of the stuff. Uh, so it self-replicates, it self-protects, and is then self-aware, aware of the environment, not self-aware as we think of it in terms of our own experience of ourselves, but it's aware of its surroundings and gets what it needs to Can I ask continue. you a quick, quick question? So Please? now you've, inter you've introduced this idea of the self and a choosy self, mm -hmm. some, you know, some form. Yep. <laughs> Are you comfortable with the notion that that entity, whatever it is, I won't call it an organism yet because it's not, but it's a, a thing that chooses. Are you okay with saying that the choices that we make today like as human beings are on a continuum with the choices that those agents made back then. Like absolutely. The one thing that you may have noticed about the autogen is that there's no DNA or RNA. Okay. So this is an entity that is doing stuff just based on chemical principles. It doesn't yet have instructions. So at some point we know in the next, you know, uh, 500 million years, this dude uh, evolved, well, probably tried a gazillion things that didn't work, but evolved into what is now our uh, most recent common ancestor of all modern life. And that most recent common ancestor now had DNA, RNA, proteins, lipid membranes, all sorts of stuff, because all of the beings that uh, followed had the, that same constitution and included in that list of uh, features that all living beings have is awareness and choosiness and this is done in modern organisms usually by proteins that are called receptors and the re bacteria and archaea and eukaryotes we have common families of receptors that are all just jury-rigged versions of the same thing that are shaped to detect particular things that a particular critter is interested in noticing about its environment. Mm -hmm. So, yes, back to your original question, the notion of the choosy origin and being aware of surroundings goes all the way down, but the actual way that we do that these days is presumably totally different from early life forms. Well, and we all, you could also say that we do it when we're in the grocery store and we need to choose between this brand of milk and that brand. We're actually doing it at that cognitive level too. But I want to pause for one second just to take note of how that scientific fact that you just laid out makes us feel. Like when I consider that the choices that I'm making today just go all the way back to the early earth. I mean, that alone conjures up some kind of, pro it should, it must conjure some kind of profound feeling, some kind of understanding that I'm connected to this, right? I mean, this is, this is the theme. We could start with gratitude. Let's thank all of those gazillions of critters that came up with all these ways of choosing things so we get to do it too. Um, Hooray for them. Yeah, um, and gratitude, and I think gra gratitude is just like, 
so needed today. I call it the, the gratitude, right. the antidote <laughs> of grievance. Gratitude is, is central to every religious tradition that I know of. Um, and it certainly is true of a religious naturalist orientation. Um, and there's another thing that maybe some of our listeners can feel, which is that some people, when they realize that what they're doing is what has been going on for 3 billion years and uh, isn't all that special, they get kind of grumpy about that and wish that the human were somehow, you know, some different thing, as, of course, many of the traditional religions claim that we are, that we uh, were created in a special sense to do things in particularly special ways. And here, what the spiritual response to that, that I try to lift up, is assent, A-S-S-E-N-T, as in thy will be done in the Christian tradition, or the Abrahamic tradition, uh, where there is giving assent to a supernatural power. But I think that all of us need to uh, give assent and then gratitude and joy that we're alive at all. <laughs> and um, the fact that we're made of matter and that we evolved, uh, I mean, lucky us. How, how, how would we rather have it?